Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello. I'm Charles Sims, your host for this episode of In Social Work. In this podcast, the second of two, Professors Elizabeth Bowen, Diane Elzey, Isak Kim, and Charles Sims of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work continue the conversation on how they have approached the topic of systemic racism with social work students. Here, the panel's discussion shifts to why they believe it is important for social work education to specifically address the issue of racism. Additionally, they explore the topic from the School of Social Work's trauma-informed human rights perspective. The podcast concludes with the panel's thoughts on moving from the academic discussion in class to real-world advocacy. Professor Elizabeth Bowen is an assistant professor who received her Ph.D. from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Professor Diane Elzey is an associate professor. She received her Ph.D. from Washington University. Professor Isak Kim is an assistant professor who received his Ph.D. from the University of Michigan. And Professor Charles Sims is a clinical associate professor who received his Master's of Social Work from the California State University, Sacramento. They met for this discussion in April of 2015. So, you know, in social work education, we tend to talk a lot about social justice and how that's an important value to the social work profession. It's really the mission of social work to promote social justice. Is it important that we frame racial justice as an important social work objective? and talk specifically about racial justice along with social justice. I think that it is very important that we're able to acknowledge that race matters. You know, as I think our conversation has already touched on a little, many of us are perfectly comfortable talking about social justice. It's a very broad term. We do hear it in social work all the time. I think in our society in general, people are far less comfortable talking about race, far less comfortable acknowledging that race matters. And yet we have so many examples of the ways that it does and that it matters for social work in particular. So whether we're talking, you know, as we mentioned about drug policy, about the child welfare system, about health disparities, there's so many ways in which race is deeply impactful. And when I thought about this question, I thought back to the slogan of the school where I got my PhD, which is Jane Addams College of Social Work at University of Illinois at Chicago. And the school slogan there is advancing social, racial, and economic justice. So I was very used to seeing those words together in many places at the school. And I like that. That kind of resonates with me because, yes, it is social justice, but I think we can also claim racial justice and economic justice, too, as key parts of that and that are worth kind of saying on their own in addition to that broader term of social justice. What I think about, you know, I agree. Folks are much, very much willing to think about things in this notion of social justice without necessarily thinking about what that means. I mm -hmm. think you're right. I think it's easy to frame it as a global 
large problem. I don't know if, it, if that's more helpful or hurtful. I mean, if it's too big, I guess you can walk away and say, well, there's nothing I can do. There's too much. There's nothing I can do about all that. But I think there are specific issues that are centered around race that can get lost in the overarching chatter of social justice that we must address because there are populations that's real for them. That every day it's a real issue. And we can talk about social justice, but for them, for their experience, their life experience, it's a racial issue. And I think we have to be comfortable enough as a profession to say what it is. And to say what it is over and over and over again so that people begin, like you heard the slogan at your school, to say it over and over and over again so that people understand that we understand what the basic issue is or what the issue is and that we will struggle to address it. I think it's kind of like saying that I am for world peace. <laughs> you hear, all, you know. Um, but to say that, I think no one's going to deny that you are for it. But as a professional, as a social worker, you have to be more specific and targeted toward what you, as an individual and as a part of a profession which advocates for social, economical, and racial justice, it's important to, I think, for students to begin the conversation in broader sense. I think the social justice is for me, like a framework in which we can articulate the kind of injustices that we as a society are dealing with. And then within that framework, we have an opportunity for each student to kind of explore and examine what are some of the challenges that we are facing as a profession. And because they are interested in, let's say, a child welfare issues in their professional trajectory, that they have to be aware of the fact that most of the child welfare issues are going to be intricately related to racial issues. I mean, issues regarding Native Americans, issues regarding the foster care and the inner cities. I mean, it's not like the racial issue is going to be um, absent in any of the things that we are addressing as social work profession. So I, I think that we give them the tool to work within their own individual selves to be able to articulate their passion and whether that passion is going to be specifically on racial issues, that's not for us to decide. But at least they, the, the student themselves begin to articulate it in a way that racial injustice is intricately and critically related and embedded in many of the, if not all, of the injustices that we are seeing in our society. I think it is very important to talk specifically about racial justice because I do think it's very easy to talk about social justice without talking about racial justice or thinking about racial justice. I think helping students see clearly that People of color are disproportionately impacted by different policies and practices. And so it's not just talking about, ooh, the need to change these policies and practices, but talking of, and changing them might be good for everybody, but changing them might be especially important for people of color. And I think restorative justice 
is a good example. I was just thinking about, I'm very excited that this fall we're going to have a course in restorative justice practices. And I've been trying to frame that, the way I want to frame that for students is that, I mean, yes, restorative justice in schools helps all kids, but to not do it in the Buffalo City schools and to not do it in school districts where it is black and brown children who are being disproportionately suspended and expelled, to not do it is a racial injustice issue, and it's a social injustice because of who is attending our Buffalo schools and who is getting suspended at disproportionate rates. Again, I think we have to explicitly draw those connections because, oh yeah, restorative justice, ooh, social justice, ooh, good for all kids. But there's another layer there, and it is critical that we do that with students of color in our school systems in this country. Otherwise, they are on, because of other policies and practices, including suspension and expulsion practices, the way they get implemented in school districts, we set them on that womb-to-prison pipeline, and we have got to stop that. So yes, yeah, so I think it's very important to talk specifically about racial injustice. And the kind of follow-up from my thinking, adding my piece, is the notion of restorative justice. We've done some stuff actually through the School of Social Work many years ago in trying it. One of the things with around some of these issues, particularly racial justice issues, social justice issues in general, but racial justice issues, is you know, how do you integrate or bring into the conversation the communities? Mm -hmm. How do you get the community because in order to do that means somebody's got to give up some power. And too often I find folks are concerned about, well, what if they do this? What if they do that? Give up some power and let a particular group come into the school and be part of that process. Nobody, people get nervous about that. We're talking about the school in, in this particular setting, but it could be in the criminal justice system. It could be in the mental health system. It could be wherever, whatever system. For me, and when I think about some of this, it's about are you willing to give up some power? Again, we talk about that in intervention. You know, how do you reduce the distance between yourself and the people that you're working with in order to work with them instead of prescribe to them? And it's about some of that, you know, being willing to accept that power dynamic exists and then working to reduce that distance. That's a great point because I think we're all on board with social justice. But this conversation of sharing power, being willing to give up some of the privilege that is inherent for some of us in some of these systems, I think that's where it gets uncomfortable, but that's absolutely where it needs to go. So here at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work, we have a trauma-informed human rights perspective, and that's infused in our curriculum. So I'm wondering how do we think about this, or how do we link this issue of racial justice into this kind of trauma-informed and human rights lens? Let me start with that. So according to the Article 7 and 9 of the UN and Declaration of Human Rights, all human beings are entitled to equal protection of the law without any discrimination, and no one shall be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention, or exile. Unfortunately, recent incidences of police brutality against the black male specifically in the United States suggest that the basic human rights not afforded for black males 
who have been historically oppressed and presently disregarded, especially in terms of the earlier comments that we were making in the drug policies, are disproportionately affecting people of color and African-American males specifically. In the context of the United States that is built on racial hierarchy, I think that trauma, as I think of it, is about collective lived experiences that starts at birth and follows through the lifetime. So trauma for people of color is not a one-time event that we might be thinking about it in different sense, but it is a repeated chronic exposure to discrimination and marginalization from the society that impact not only the mental health, but physical health as well. And I think there are a large body of research that indicates that exposure to racial discrimination impacts and have a, a negative consequences in both mental health and physical health among specifically, again, African Americans. So I think it directly relates to the lives of black males specifically. It affects how they view the society and how they are feeling marginalized and neglected by the very society that they feel like they need to be part of. Or, for some people, more on the lines of targeted. Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah. People feel targeted. Or there are times when I'm walking in a store and I get stopped, can I help you, five times between the beginning of the store and halfway through. So you can feel targeted, like people are watching so when folks say, well, that's just you know, paranoid thinking, you know, folks, it's reality. For many people, that's their experience. And one thing, you want to make somebody feel crazy, tell them their experience is not real over and over and over and over again. That it's just an exaggeration of what's actually happening. You can begin to feel angry, just, just angry. I think that the issue of dehumanization is important in all of this because you know when we dehumanize people we deny them human rights typically we deny them life itself and I think as you're talking I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about how when the Ferguson events went down and then there were lots of articles on the internet, some fabulous articles about racial justice issues. And I forced myself at that time to read the comments. Mm -hmm. And it was so incredibly painful and horrifying to read the depth of people's hatred of black people. And there were hundreds of comments like that attached to those articles. So for me, <laughs> I mean, it just gives me such great pause about how deep that goes in our culture. And I think, you know, one positive thing is, is that it's becoming more apparent to us that we can't ignore it. But I think that dehumanization of people that persists and is manifested in so many ways and runs so deep in the fabric of our society and within our bones as a people of the United States. You know, I think that certainly for me has links to 
our trauma-informed and human rights perspective because it's just been this horrifying process of dehumanizing people. And we have many examples then of violating people's human rights in this country. We love to look at other countries and see how they're violating people's human rights. Well, let's look in our own backyard. And I have to say, I'm glad that I didn't teach social welfare history and policy in the fall because I don't know if I could have done it. Well, I was thinking, you know, as all of you were talking about the trauma aspects of this, that, you know, obviously when we talk about, and it's not just Ferguson, it's, we've had this happen in many parts of the country in many different ways, some that get publicized more than others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's obviously the trauma to, you know, on an individual level to someone who's, you know, the family members of a person who's killed by the police, for example. But I think we're clearly hitting upon a trauma at other levels too. So to a whole community, to you know the entire country in some ways, to you know maybe all oppressed people or people of color, when we have these constant reminders that this is how you're viewed, how you're dehumanized, you're viewed as less than human in our society, and you know I think we have a lot of policies that contribute to that dehumanization. And I was starting to think about, but what if our policies instead could be more trauma-informed? Because you know, in social work, we talk a lot about our programs being trauma-informed, so how can my agency or my program be trauma-informed? But I like to start to think about how could our policy, how could our laws be more trauma-informed? And because my interest is in drug policy, I think clearly we see many examples how that is not very trauma-informed when we treat drug use primarily as a criminal justice issue, not a public health issue. And I don't know a lot, you know, about law enforcement, about the judicial system, about that aspect of our policy. But from what I hear, especially as these incidents come out, it's clear that that is not a very trauma-informed system either. And so just think about how things could be so different, especially in terms of racial justice, if those systems were transformed in that direction. And I know that's something that won't happen quickly or easily, but that I hope social work can be a voice and change in that direction. So as educators, we hope that the impact of what our students learn and discuss in the classroom will extend beyond the classroom. So how do we help our students move from the discussions and reflections that take place in class to advocating for racial justice in the real world, whether that be in their field placements, in their jobs, or in other community settings? So when I teach the course, especially on diversity and oppression, addresses issues of racism and other isms in our society, I always try to bring up the current affairs that are happening either here in the United States or elsewhere, but it's surprising that not many students are aware of the, some of the glaring issues that are covered in the more traditional media. So um, I might see maybe half of the students in my class would be aware of the fact that the Walter Scott case would be happening and unraveling as we speak, but half of them may not be aware of that. So we tend to sort of localize and sort of target our own sort of feed on in terms of social media, and we get sort of this sort of slanted view of you know, where our media consumption is happening. And so I try to have them be more open to exploring other traditional media forms, even in some of the more open-ended alternative media sources like Amado Jones 
or other aspects of that more specific to racial issues. But I also think that, that some of the media is also sensationalizing the stories that may not need that sort of, for the lack of a better word, focus. And sometimes what's highlighted in the media doesn't necessarily mean that it is important in the discussions and the relevance of the fact that we are talking about the issues of racism. So, so I think it's important to pay attention to what's not being discussed as well, because I feel like there are many efforts that are happening in the grassroots level that is not being covered in the media. So for example, I work with the refugee communities in, in Buffalo, and many of the issues that were percolating up in the community level was not being discussed with the media until much later. And only then we pick up on the issues that are happening that affect these vulnerable communities. So we have to be mindful about the fact that I think it's important to sort of be involved in the community, like Charles was saying earlier, and having that partnership in order to be aware of what's happening at the grassroots level, but also in the larger discussions on issues of race and ethnicity that are sort of you know, overwhelming us all the time. But in having those conversations, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that the very things that are happening in our own backyard is probably is not being covered. And I think it's important for us to point students in the direction if they don't know what is happening to point students in the direction of, especially local, I think, efforts that community organizations are taking on around social justice issues. Because I think that can be helpful for students in also keeping their hope alive and their belief in social change. Because I think what they're learning in the classroom you know, they're learning about so many of the things that are wrong <laughs> that I think they also need to learn about the things that they can do to correct those wrongs and to see people actually doing those things. And many of our students are involved, I think, in social justice issues and they organize things and it's really wonderful. But I think at least pointing all of them in those directions because they have to believe that they can make a difference, even if some of their professors are feeling a bit pessimistic. <laughs> about, you know. But yeah, and I think a lot of exciting work, that's where it's happening at the local level these days. I think that's important because sometimes we feel like when you are in the profession long enough and practiced as a practitioner, you kind of gravitate towards all the things that are wrong with the profession and with the system that you're a part of, and you lose the sight of the wonderful things that, that we are making a difference. And the kind of the challenges that we face is because we're working against the status quo. And so we can highlight the fact that we are having the challenge because we are pushing against the norms. and kind of you know, letting them know that that's okay and having a courage and opportunity to engage in, in a conversation and a network of people who are concerned about the same issue that you care about. And that brings the issues of the resilience and start to have a real good conversations about the possibility and the applicability of, of social work.
as both as a, a profession, but also an, an, a, as an advocate avenue. Yeah, kind of along those lines, I, I don't know if I always do a good job of conveying this to my classes, but I want to convey that students should not underestimate their own ability to be change agents. And mm -hmm. I think about it in field placement specifically because mm -hmm. when you come into a field placement setting, on one hand, you're a low power actor in that situation. You're kind of the lowest person on the, the organizational hierarchy coming in as an intern. But I think because of that, you have kind of an insider-outsider perspective when you come in that way. And I think sometimes students can see patterns or injustices that people who have been there for a while, it might just be so entrenched and it's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle. You know, so I don't know how exactly to empower students to know that, but I do want them to know that. But I think you actually can see and do a lot, even at an agency level, even just in your field placement, especially if you are kind of connecting some of these dots with the micro and the macro practice yeah. issues with racial justice, with social justice. So I hope our students know that. Yeah. I think many of them do. I mean, I hear them talk about how they take that trauma-informed yeah. perspective into their agencies and that you know, have discussions with their colleagues there and are often met with interest. Mm -hmm. You know, right. ooh, tell us more about this. Since I teach in the foundation year, and we've talked a lot about our concerns around making sure that students have the lens and, and we're concerned to making sure that social work is being deliberate and specific about addressing racial injustices uh, in populations that we work with. But I'm also heartened sometimes, because I hear students talk about their experiences in field, and some of them seem to get it. I mean, sometimes I walk out of class going, hey, they, they are paying attention. That <laughs> <laughs> They see the disparity, they see the, the problem, they may not know what to do, or they may feel that I don't want to rock the boat because I just want to make sure I pass my field placement. So I'm heartened by that sometimes, mm -hmm. on more occasions than probably it sounds like. I'm also thinking that, and listening to people talk, we had the field seminar for a long time, and it's kind of gone this way and that way until we finally eliminated it. But I think there are things that kind of seminar can address. Because sometimes I think, wouldn't it be great if we could put a booster session in for students about nine to 12 months out, they have to come back to the school, and we can kind of re-inoculate them for the world that they're facing. But I wonder sometimes if in doing the seminar we got too ambitious that it could be a place where students didn't have to produce something, but really got a chance to sit down and talk about some of these critical issues, because I'm sure they see it, but I don't know if they always have the opportunity in a field placement or in a field placement setting to really explore it, because there are so many other things that have to occur. The seminar can be, because we're asking, in our case, we're asking people to be master's level practitioners. So how do you critically think about the experience that you've had intersecting that or connecting that with what you've been exposed to in class. So maybe you can start to develop strategies, maybe some of that's bringing some people from the community who have come through the school and actually now are in a position to impart some of their experience and knowledge and use those kinds of settings for something like that. I know that that may be problematic and we may not go very far with, but I'm just struck by, you know, couldn't we do that? Would that be useful? Mm -hmm. Just a thought. I think that's why it's so special for us to have a social work profession and education. And when we have this a place where we can foster and facilitate a conversation that is going to be relevant when they go out into the real world and practice on 
whatever the passion that they have, it's always going to be reflected upon the fact that what they know in the real world is predicated upon the fact that the education that they received here in School of Social Work can actually mean something. So I think for us to create a connection between the community and the classroom in a seamless way, I think that's both our challenge and our opportunity in creating a place where we, not only as a social worker, but as the general educator, create a, a space where students can talk about issues they are facing in their internship uh, places or, or not. I think we have to model that experience. We have to be willing to step in and model that process of critically looking at yourself, honestly looking at yourself vis-a-vis -vis your field of practice and understanding that you know, working on self is important. Just I got the MSW or I got my license and now I can go do it. But or I I'm going to a training session, best training or in service. That working on self is more than that. It, it is about being honest with self and how are you doing the work? How are you practicing? So does anyone have any final thoughts or concluding remarks that? They would like to share. I think it's been a wonderful conversation so far, and we could go on if we <laughs> can. But as a final thoughts, maybe we can share some things that perked up in the last minute. I did have something I wanted to say that I was thinking about going into this. So knowing that I was coming here today to do this podcast, and I was thinking about this topic, racism, racial injustice, and how it is an uncomfortable topic often. And I'm saying this from my perspective as a white person. So I was thinking about that and thinking, okay, we know this is uncomfortable. And as a result, I think often when white people talk about the topic of racism, it often ends up going in one of two directions. One of them being kind of a, a response to minimize or deny it. So you know, we hear people sometimes saying things like, oh, I don't think things are that bad anymore. I think we've moved on. And then I think the other response we hear sometimes from us white people is a response that acknowledges racism, but sometimes I think we feel compelled to try to set ourselves apart from it. So I can acknowledge that this happens, but I don't want you know, to think about the fact that I might contribute to it in some ways or that I might benefit it in some ways. And so instead I want to present myself as this kind of enlightened or otherwise exemplary white person who's not part of that system. So my you know, kind of challenge to myself here, and I'll extend that challenge perhaps to other white people, is to try to be willing to do some of the hard work to go beyond that, to have some uncomfortable conversations around this, to have some potentially uncomfortable self-reflection about privilege, about the way we contribute to that or benefit from that, about implicit and explicit bias, and just to kind of have the humility to be able to go there. And it's not easy, but I think maybe we all need to challenge ourselves to do that. Well, and as I sit here, I mean, I think certainly all of us white folks are part of the problem. And I think about myself, we as a school, like what else can we do? I mean, r the racial injustice issues in Buffalo are, you know, so huge and so major that what else can we do? Thinking creatively about how the school can engage around those issues. Many students are engaging around those issues. Many faculty were involved in the community in different ways. But ooh, what else could we do to have more of an impact? And I guess the other thing 
is about the white privilege issue because, you know, I try to think about that a lot and how I act that out in my life. I guess when I say that, you know, we're all part of the problem is that, you know, we all benefit from that. But there is that system is held in place, I think, with such violence and that, I think, has become perhaps more apparent to people in this country. It has always happened in both the North and the South, but with the events in Ferguson and then all of the bystander videos that keep surfacing, I think that people, perhaps more people, are getting a sense of the breadth and depth of the violence that holds that system of white privilege in place. And I think that we individually and as a school also need to, I think we need to take that on in a more concerted way somehow. Part of me, I think the depth of that violence, it's starting to move. And by that, I mean that the use of physical violence, first we've got video, but we've always seen that when people step outside of the other kinds of economic, uh, particularly violence where of subjugating, for lack of a better term, of people, that we've, as a society, we've always been able to go to physical violence relatively easily and mm -hmm. to kind of reinforce those perceived social norms mm -hmm. or expectations. I'm kind of thinking where I'd like to leave or my final thoughts are kind of follow some of the things that folks have said in this notion that social work's not blameless either. Mm -hmm. And part of us recognizing or struggling to move forward, we kind of have to own our past mm -hmm. and say this is where we were, this is where we're going, and this is the reason why. And because I think sometimes you know, we like to dress ourselves up as, as the lone voice in the wilderness, but we have our own pieces of this. And we can, again, we've said this earlier, that if we're not careful, we can become part and parcel to the systems that we say are problematic and either implicitly or explicitly. I think for me, because as I started with the, the identity of intersectionality issue, that as an Asian American male, I have an opportunity to start the conversation about the issues of racial injustice in a way that other ethnic minorities aren't able to. So for me, it's about creating a place for students, the social work students who are taking classes from me have a place, a safe place, for them to talk about uncomfortable topics like institutional racism so that we don't necessarily avoid talking about uncomfortable topics as if we were talking about the issues of safety. So I try to separate those two out. And it's important for me to say that being uncomfortable is part of the job description for me as a social worker, because if you aren't able to, to withstand that, or at least process that on your own in school while you're preparing to become on a social worker, then 
I think it would be very difficult to even address that issue as a social worker, because I believe that social worker is part of the conversation that we need to have as a colleagues in order to promote and advocate for the racial injustices that we're seeing. And we have to be on the front line in getting that opportunity possible for not only for the students, but to educating others who are able to undertake those opportunities. This concludes our conversation on addressing institutionalized racism and racial injustice in social work coursework. While this is the end of our podcast, we hope this conversation is only the beginning of an ongoing dialogue in social work education and beyond. So thank you for listening, and thank you to all of our discussants for participating. This has been the second of a two-part panel conversation on why it is important for social work education to address the topic of systemic racism. I'm Charles Sims, your host. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.